Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International, but you're hearing us over EWTN Radio, which is, a, I consider, a great privilege to be involved with EWTN. And uh, my guest for today's episode of Deep in Scripture is uh, a guest that joined me on Monday night. Patrick Coffin shared his journey back to the church, brought up in the Catholic Church, uh, went out uh, to Skittatasket, uh, wherever he could find to uh, uh, try and find some meaning in his life, whether he was really searching for meaning at the time or not, or just having a good old time up in Canada. But then, by God's grace, found his way back to the church. But not just that, I mean, truly to faith. Um, what would you say came first, coming back to the to faith or coming back to the church, Pat? I think in the order of events, it was faith first. I was shy to say that the church that I effectively left was going to be the gold standard for what faith is the object of. So, uh, yeah, faith first. I was, I'm, you know, intellectually an agnostic, I would say. Um, but I finally, as I mentioned on the, the TV show, doubted my doubts enough to realize that the source of truth is not within me. It's, it lies elsewhere. I have to find it wherever the, the journey takes me, even if it's inconvenient in its direction. But uh, at the time, I was more in love with the search. You know, you say the yeah. church. We love the liberals love the journey. You see, the destination, not so much. But the journey, man. You know, we love uh, we love jokes, but we hate punchlines. <laughs> well, from your work with Catholic Answers, and of course, you your regular radio show every afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're confronting people that call you all the time. But with your work with Catholic Answers, would you say in general? That folk brought up in churches like the Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, Lutheran Church, mm-hmm. Presbyterian Church, people who are brought up in um, often high liturgical in which the faith involves a high level of external aspects mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe more of an evangelical church where it's primarily an intellectual conversion to Jesus. But those that have a very external element, I'm wondering if that's often the case that when people grow up and and have adapted many of the externals of their faith, though the inside might not be very full, Mm -hmm. that later what brings them back to a full understanding of the externals is they have that true conversion first, and then the church starts making more sense. Mm -hmm. I think people naturally, maybe it's human nature thing, I know I do it naturally, we we bifurcate things. We we are kind of allergic to the both-and principle. I, I think that the liturgical tradition of the church is like the bones, like the skeleton. You know, you need structure. There's a before, a beginning, and an end. You're swept up into something greater than you, but also something that has a repetitive element to it. Now, if you don't have that heart relationship with Christ, then it becomes ritualism. It becomes an empty thing I go through. And when I warm the pew for an hour, I, I, I leave about the same shape that I'm in. Well, that's ritualism. But if you err on the side of the the guts, if you will, you know, that you need organs too, then it becomes kind of a mushy subjectivism where if there's not an emotional kick to your worship service, then you didn't get much out of it and, quote, you weren't fed. And how many times have you heard people leave the Catholic Church under that rubric, I wasn't fed? Ironically, they're being fed with the bread of life himself. They just didn't know it. Well, there we, again, we have the incarnational aspect of the Catholic faith, which is so really central. And I think even Mm -hmm. converts to the church it takes a while for them to fully appreciate that incarnational aspect. It's a yeah. both and. It is that you know the movie that in the, in the novel, the river runs through it. Yes, that river runs through the whole Catholic worldview. This incarnational both and principle, human and divine, faith and works, and so on. Yeah. All right, and what we normally, because you've joined us for the first time on a deep scripture program, what we normally do is have a guest talk about scriptures that were particularly. Uh, an important part of their own journey, helping them appreciate the fullness of the faith. And the Monday night journey home program that Patrick appeared on in which he shared more of his details of coming back to the faith, we didn't deal with Scripture on that program. We often don't have the time. And so I keep him around to use this opportunity to let us dig into Scripture a little more. And the one thing, Patrick, that I've emphasized from the beginning of doing this program is a correct way of making sure that when we look at a scripture passage that we interpret it correctly Mm -hmm. is that we make sure we are faithful to all of its contexts. 
yep. the immediate context, the book, the entire Bible itself, but within the context of the church and the teacher with, when, with which we've received that from. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at the verses that you've chosen. I didn't, For example, I think it's very important that we make sure that we hear these in the full tradition of the church mm-hmm. and not through some modern glasses. I mean, right. when you agree, I mean, people could take this verse and make it say a lot. When I taught high school theology, Marcus, I would say, did you know, first class, do you know the Bible teaches that there's no God? And they look at me, what's, what's he been drinking? Yeah, Psalm, Psalm 14. There is no God, literally. And of course, the verse is, the fool said isn't, says in his heart there's no God. But I would, I would get the student to read out loud where I wanted them to start and finish, which was mid-verse. Of course, they'd all roar. Oh, you can't, you can't do that. You know, you're missing the first half of the verse. Oh, really? And the lesson is a text without a context is a pretext. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. The more concentric circles outward you can get to, the better. All right. The passage that uh, – first, well, let me – just in case you didn't hear Monday night, Patrick Coffin is the host of Catholic Answers Live, the number one rated Catholic radio show in America, second only to Deep in Scripture. He has published dozens of articles, essays, and interviews. He's born in Nova Scotia. He is an alumnus of Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax, McGill University in Montreal, and Franciscan University of Steubenville, Ohio, where he obtained a master's degree in theology. And if you'd like to contact Patrick later, you can do it. Do this at patrickcoffin.net or catholic.com. Mm-hmm. All right? Now, you've chosen, I can almost guarantee that you've chosen a, a passage that none of my guests have covered in the last five or six years, or how long we've done mm-hmm. deep in Scripture, because mm-hmm. they usually don't say this is the verse that awakened them to the beauty of the church. But mm-hmm. not just that you've chosen this, but I think you're going to argue that, in fact, when you understand the bigger contextual meaning of this, that, in fact, it, it uh, solidifies the necessity of an authoritative church to help you understand Scripture as well as mm-hmm. the, the issues in your life. Now, you've chosen the first set is Genesis 38, 9 through 10. Before we read it, why yeah. this passage? This passage is explicitly mentioned in Casti Canubii by Pope Pius XI, which came out the last day of the year, 1930. He didn't, he didn't mention the Anglican Church by name, but everyone knew he was referring to it. Um, of course, we mentioned on The, Coming Home, uh, the Journey Home that mm-hmm. uh, August of 1930 was the very first crack in the dam of Christendom on this issue. The Anglicans were the, sort of the thin edge of the wedge, and uh, the Holy Father, Pius XI, was very concerned that there would be confusion within the Catholic ranks. Now, this is th- literally 30, let's see, 20 years before the pill was approved. So uh, the inovulant birth control pill was not on the radar at all. It was primarily uh, coitus interruptus and uh, condoms. Those were the main m- modes, along with foams and more g- really primitive jelly-type situations. So um, he cites Genesis 38 and uh, a, a sermon that St. Augustine gave on it. So this is really the first modern scriptural appeal to undergird what the Church has always taught about, about contraception, that it's not allowed anywhere, not because it's a Catholic thing, but because it's against human nature. Um, just to let the audience, who maybe wasn't expecting us to jump right into this issue mm-hmm. here in this particular program, uh, it really does connect with your journey, but also a book that you've written, which probably ought to be worth mentioning. Sure. Yeah, Sexo Naturel, What It Is and Why It's Good for Your Marriage. It's uh, the shorthand way of saying it is it's Humana Vitae for Skeptics. I, I came back <laughs> to the church through my doubting my doubts about that, and that that led me, it was like the camel's nose into the most beautiful tent imaginable. And it was from that testimony of Paul the Sixth. I learned about the Church Fathers and their support for this. I learned about uh, the full uh, meaning of the sacramental life and what it means to be a son of the Church. Not just a follower of Jesus, but a son of the Church. And so... You know, I can't help but think, when I think about the 1930 decision that overturned the consensus up until that time, and then, of course, has now overturned everything else since, Mm -hmm. that... The time period that that happened, which was during the Great Depression, Mm -hmm. makes me wonder if the pressure on those particular leaders to allow contraception came as a result of people arguing for the economic justification of not having kids. 
That's a hard one to quarterback on, Marcus. I never thought about it in that light um, because you could argue the from the other angle, and that is in the era of the flappers. Okay, this is the 1920s, the Great Gatsby right. era. Yep. Hollywood was making movies with a lot of nudity and violent context. People don't know that. It wasn't until 1934 when the Hayes Production Code became... became a lot of the, the silent kind movies of, had, had... They had, did. Yeah. There were a lot of sort of, you know, Roman... Uh, Roman Greek era things that gave him an excuse to to do all kinds of uh, of uh, so called adult content. The Hayes Production Code that came into existence in the mid '30s was around Hollywood until 1966, and it was a sel- it was a uh, list of self governing don'ts and be carefuls. And if Hollywood didn't uh, agree with them, a little thing called the Legion of Decency, a Catholic group would uh, would post movies in the in the foyers of church halls and, and parishes around the country saying we're not going to watch this movie because it made the Legion of Decency list. Now it's not really censorship because no one was saying it's against the law for you to do that. But the people who ran Hollywood still do. It's not called show art, it's show business. They didn't want to offend their their potential customers. And so they had to make movies that used a lot of imagination. So you have Frank Capra and Alfred Hitchcock and what film students today still know as the golden age. Those were all movies made after 1935 or so right. where things were supposed to be the most dark and rigid. But really it made artists dig deeper and uh, and produce content that was uh, beautiful and life-changing without the nonsense of the 20s. So Custy Kanubi responded to something that happened that year in 1930s, it may have been the pressure toward um, a new spirit of promiscuity than the Depression, because mm-hmm. the crash is 1929. The Depression may came later. But you know what? We, we, we excuse our yeah. sins all the time. Yeah. So I'm sure that would have been thrown under the, under the card as well, well. My guess is that you, even today, when you hear people arguing for uh, allowing uh, contraception in third world countries, often it's the poverty it's, mm-hmm. it's those issues, uh, and they're always blaming it on these <clears throat> parents with children they can't take care of, and so not only allowing it but forcing it. Of course, you have that mm-hmm. in the early 20th century with youth euthanasia movement, and still do in China. Uh, I mean, the uh, not the euthanasia movement. The uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Where uh, you're you selectively killing folk. Uh, oh, eugenics. Eugenics. That's movement, right. Excuse me. Which Planned Parenthood originally had eugenics right. as a part of their title. Yeah. yeah. Google Hitler Sanger. <laughs> you yeah. get an interesting uh, yeah. Yeah. hodgepodge. Yeah. Yeah. And H.G. Uh, Wells, who had an affair with with Sanger, H.G. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wells uh, was committed on destroying Victorian society. And so, I mean, mm-hmm. all this stuff was going on at the time. The pressure was always there. But I've, just, I've always wondered whether the, the Trump card in 1930 mm-hmm. was finally these Anglican bishops were being forced on the economic issue and folded, mm-hmm. folded rather than, and of course, some of the same arguments were being made in the 1960s to try and justify why they thought Paul VI yeah. ought to fold. The majority report that was issued by the commission, which is purely advisory, which is purely consultative in nature, used the same arguments that the Anglican bishops made 50 or 60 years later. Only in marriage. We don't want to encourage promiscuity. And not for any reasons. They couldn't be frivolous reasons. They had to be for extraordinary reasons. So uh, the ground had been softened. And interesting, you bring up Margaret Sanger. She coined the phrase birth control. I say in the book, I don't use the phrase birth control because I think it's it's too mushy. I don't want to give credence to the culture of death lingo. Um, You know, Chesterton quipped once she coined the phrase, yeah, no birth and no control, meaning no Uh, (laughs) self-control. What the church forbids is not birth control per se, but birth prevention. You could argue, and it and it's argued today by some, that natural family planning is a form of quote birth control. And there's something to be said for that in the sense that you're you're controlling when you renew your marriage and when you don't. But it's the prevention. It's seeing a baby as an intrinsic evil, as something that you have what Germaine Grise calls a practical hatred for. Not an emotional hatred. You don't imagine Junior and then scream at it. But the introduction of a baby into your life is seen as gravely uh, inconvenient enough that you're going to do something to prevent it. So birth prevention is the problem, not birth control per se. Does that that distinction make sense? Yeah. Let me say that Constance Kanubi would have no flying relevance to when I was a Presbyterian pastor, and maybe to a lot of our audience, right? Mm -hmm. And 
I'm wondering when we look back before 1930s, um, the Westminster Confession didn't have any statement on this, Luther's Heidelberg Catechism. There wasn't in any of the doctrines of faith, mm-hmm. but would have been a text like we're looking at right here in Genesis 38, 9 through 10, would have been one of the key passages that all the Christian churches would have based their their uh, teachings against contraception. They did. The homilies and the written sermons of Calvin and Luther appeal over and over to Genesis 38 and, and Psalm 127, our other selection. And the language used by Calvin and Martin Luther against contraception is vehement, combative, the gloves are off, they're, you can just, there's a seething quality in the way they write. I mean, both, I think, were gentlemen with short fuses. That's just my guess. There's a kind of an edge to uh, the way the way they express themselves. But no Catholic pope ever condemned contraception with the the um, the animus that the reformers did. Which is almost interesting because if you, at least our caricature of both Luther and Calvin is with, in the depravity of the will that our depravity never really ceases in this life because of the complete break at the original fall of Adam. Mm-hmm. And so we're only covered with the righteousness of our Lord Jesus. We ourselves yeah. are as... as and so the, why would they care? Because Luther argued, well, I could do adultery set 10,000 times in a day, mm-hmm. uh, and it wouldn't change my status with my Lord Jesus. Yeah. So what difference does it make if you contracept? Well, they're they're inconsistent on that because they there were things that they would accept and things they wouldn't accept. Turns out they did care, which means... There's a there was a there's a vestige of Catholicism in even the later writings of both men. You can't it's you can't really leave the Marines, yeah. Marcus. You know, yeah. it was the third and fourth mm-hmm. generation Lutherans that got real sticklers because they didn't have the Catholic foundation mm-hmm. that Luther and Calvin. That's both right. Did. Both yeah, that both trained in uh, Catholic context. You mentioned uh, on the TV show that Martin Luther's own formation was not well grounded in the scholastics. He did not get the kind of seminary training priests today get even. Right. Right, yeah, he would. It'll open up the can of worms, but really more of anomalism that he received mm-hmm. from uh, from Occam and Beale. Okay, let's let me read the passage which we've been alluding to, and uh, this is Genesis thirty eight nine through ten. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground lest he should give offspring to his brother. And what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he slew him also. Mm-hmm. One concentric circle out from that line is the chapter 38. Genesis 38 is wedged between the story of Joseph, where um, his father Jacob tearfully thinks he's gone forever. Of course, the brothers lied. A beautiful type of Jesus, as I know you know. It's yep. <laughs> um, my daughter's favorite Bible passage is the story of Joseph, yeah. as Joseph as a sort of forerunner of, of our Lord. Um, and so the narrative is picked up in chapter 39 when he begins to work for Potiphar. So there's this story of, of the betrayal of the foundation of life. And we should say that if people have never read the, read the story, Onan is a nephew of Joseph, patriarch, and his father, Judah, had picked a wife for his older brother, Ur, and uh, Ur got the same pu- punishment. Now, some rabbinic scholars say that it was the same thing that uh, Onan was slain for. It was contraception. That's a, a Jewish tradition on this, and the Jews have been have been at the Old Testament game longer than we have, yep, so right. that, we should kind of give us a weight to that, although it's not official church teaching. So his brother is now... Um, Childless because he died, and Tamar, his wife, is still living. And so the Jewish tradition, um, you can read about it in Deuteronomy 25, the law of, of Leverit, uh, obliged him to have relations with his uh, brother's widow, and the children would be raised with the brother's lineage. So that was the tradition that um, provides the context for this. Now, we did study this in university. But we studied it with a kind of a jaundiced eye because we said, look, the sin of Onan is the sin of stinginess. He was supposed to do something for his brother, and the Jews had this thing about, you know, extending their tribes and so on. Family lineage and descendants are very important in Jewish culture. It wasn't birth control or contraception. It was just he was selfish when he should have been selfless. He was kind of a jerk to his late brother. The problem is, 
Well, I'm, first, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, just you hold that thought because there's another mm-hmm. problem talking about this. Is what you studied in college, mm-hmm. but there's another issue with those that are going to say, well, I mean, was there a person owning? Mm-hmm. I mean, in other words, J-E-D-P, mm-hmm. the Old Testament, is a collection of committees that put things together that later yeah. on would read back into things and put – so in other words, they come up with this story because at some point they want to argue against something. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of that immediately undercuts whether it has any authority at all anyway. It is. That, that is the, the remote background to this whole conversation today. You're right. Yeah. The JEDP theory, which has never been officially adopted by oh. the Catholic Church, but it's now, it's holy writ among what we could say mainstream Catholic scholarship and some Protestant scholarship too. Um, at the turn of the, turn of the previous century, the, uh, what then was a wing of the teaching arm of the church, the pontifical biblical uh, commission, um, there's a different angle on on that the authorship of the Torah, as I know you know, um, Marcus. But that I think we can we can circumvent this by saying that when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, you can't say, "Oh, could you find the Good Samaritan in the you know the in the telephone book back then?" <laughs> the historicity of the Good Samaritan is 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 secondary to the truth told in the story. Well, um, as Benedict. Mm-hmm. As said very clearly, following Vatican II, as well as following the papal documents on Scripture for the last hundred years, he's in line with conservative, faithful, non-Catholic scholars Mm -hmm. that accept a canonical understanding of Scripture. In other words, Mm -hmm. there's lots of ways it may have gotten there, Mm -hmm. but that's not as important as the fact that this is the collection of books that our Lord has given through us by the Holy Spirit as the inspired canon of Scripture. Yep, and and not just the um, not just the text itself, but the hermeneutical way you understand the text as it was meant to be read, in light of the Spirit and through whom it was written, i.e., the Holy Spirit. This is why we have a church. We don't have to make things up. The, the wheel does not have to continually be reinvented. And what counts here is what the author of Genesis thirty-eight intended to teach. So. Uh, the, the question of the historicity of Onan is a, is, a, is a quicksand. Where does it end? Was there an Adam? Was there an Eve? Was there an Ark? Was there a Psalmist? Was there a King David? Was there a Jesus? You see where it goes? Yeah, it <laughs> that's ends up where with, the, it, is there morality? Radical. I mean, <laughs> it is the, the foyer to the shack of yeah. relativism right there and yeah. subjectivism. Yeah. Which undercuts so. the use of any of this. But let's, let's recognize this is the inspired word of God. This is mm-hmm. not just for Christians, but for as you said, the, the whole Jewish faith is based on an understanding of this passage for their own morality. Mm-hmm. And because it's uh, alluded to in a papal, papal encyclical, it has another note of authority. Uh, the teaching that is contained in Humana Vitae, Marcus, is infallible teaching. It has not been excathedra in an extraordinary way defined as such dogmatically. But it belongs to the heart, the warp and woof of Christian life and has never been taught otherwise since apostolic times, that it carries the note of infallibility. Now, I'm sure you could write a dissertation that would be approved by some theological faculty that would say the contrary, but uh, these are norms that belong to human nature. Whenever you have a, I mean, this is part of what brought me back to the church. When I read the way that Pius the Twelfth, excuse me, Pius the Eleventh, phrased his uh, his language in condemning contraception. It's a grave sin. It's a crime against nature. Those who indulge in it are, are branded with the guilt of a grave sin. Wow. You know, Holy Father, you commit yourself to an opinion. Uh, if he's <laughs> wrong on that, there's no way I could be a Catholic because you cannot keep a billion people in spiritual bondage to something that's not mortally sinful unless it is. Yeah. And if I'm going to say, if I'm going to dissent on that, then why do I assent to the resurrection? You can't prove the resurrection of the New Testament. It's testimony. Well, these norms are the testimony of, of the modern popes and the experience of Catholics throughout history. In fact, the it, it, this resurrection, all the other doubting issues that we've mentioned about high scholarship bring us down to nothing mm-hmm. until we encounter that one statement, he's alive. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. reality of the first he's alive brings us all the way back to trusting the church and the inspiration because of Jesus Christ. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm here today with Patrick Coffin. You're hearing us on EWTN, Global Catholic Radio Network. 
This Deep in Scripture radio program is produced by the Coming Home Network International, a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. You can listen to any of our past radio programs by logging onto our website, which also offers a wealth of information on our Catholic faith, including conversion stories, an online forum, and available resources to help you to find the truth of our faith. Visit us today at www.deepinscripture.com. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. I'm just having a good old time during the break talking with Patrick Coffin, our guest. And he's, his book, uh, Sex on Nashorail, deals with this issue that we're focusing on today with the basis of Genesis 38, 9 through 10 as a launching point for the discussion of, of uh, contraception. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Before we get into the, the uh, heart of... Yeah. 38 Genesis. I want to go one one degree out, and that is the whole tenor of Scripture, starting with Genesis chapter 1. If I if this was a TV show and I had a PowerPoint and I showed you the Nike swoosh, what would <laughs> what phrase would come to mind? What? You know, the Nike swoosh symbol for Nike? Oh, sure. What's sure, the sure, tagline? Sure. You remember? Oh. Just do it. Do it. Right. Of course. Yes. That's the first divine command. It's not from, from Mo, to Moses on the mountain. It's uh, Genesis 1, 27, 28. Yes. This is a commandment. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and so on. But it's not well known, and I, I was stunned to learn that this re, this is repeated two more times in Scripture. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. The exact same phraseology. Um, to Abraham, Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. And God said to him, meaning Abraham, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring from you. So this idea that the sexual act is inexorably tied to fecundity and generosity is never contradicted in Scripture. The The Word of God v- practically vibrates with life and, and seeing it as a blessing and a, and a great gift. So that's the background of Genesis 38. And so the key sentence that we're, we're selecting here... Um, Verse 10 says, And what he did, what Onan did, was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he slew him also. What he did, not what he intended, not what he felt like, his action. The objective thing that he did was displeasing, and it earned Onan the death penalty. Now, when I when I was presented this, with this passage in university, <laughs> in a very kind of hard-left environment, we were told that Onan's sin was stinginess. It was not anything to do with contraception that he was not being hospitable to his late brother. However, um, the law of the Leviret, which is the kind of the background subject matter here, did have a punishment for refusing to uh, raise up children for your, your late brother, and that's found in chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, in which the wife is able to go up to the living brother and, and uh, do this sort of embarrassing ritual. She spits and she takes his shoes off, and he's humiliated in front of his brethren. Well, it's kind of... Embarrassing, but it's not the death penalty. And the difference is, 
if you say you'll do something, then you don't do it. That's different than acting out as if you had and then covering it up. Hmm. So refraining from doing something you should is not the same as defrauding someone and then telling them that you actually did it. Onan went through the motions of producing life from Tamar. And then at the very moment when the conception could occur, he withdraws and scripture says he spilled a seed upon the ground. Very kind of coarse language. Whenever scripture talked about sexual sin, the language is is invariably kind of graphic and uh, unwholesome. As opposed to think of the the first sexual union with between our first parents, Adam knew no, Eve. Right. You know, Song of Songs, a very poetic, very erotic, very uh, wholesome, loving, pure ideal of sexuality, which is which is God's plan for us even now. So, spilling the seed upon the ground is the thing he did. That's different from saying, "I just don't want to do it." And if if he said the latter, that would qualify for this embarrassing ritual found in in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy twenty five. It's amazing what that description reminds me of. It reminds me of in the Book of Acts, where they're trying to live their the first concept of community was uh, was uh, a form of communism, right? They're all living together and they're sharing. And there was a, a couple that kind of said they had given everything mm-hmm. to the community, but they had lied. Yep, yeah, and Anais and Sapphira. That's they, right. They defrauded the apostles. And they got zapped. They, they got the Onan treatment. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, that's true. That's uh, In the book, I go into the, the New Testament clues uh, that validate and, and build upon what we're talking about now in Genesis 38. And I think because the context of, on, uh, of the Onan story is nuptial and the preservation of life, St. Augustine in one of his sermons, has this very provocative image of Christ's marriage bed being the cross. And in mounting the marriage bed of the cross, the bridegroom gave his life up with sighs for his uh, for, for the woman, i.e. for us. Mm-hmm. And I began to reflect on that, and because uh, I'm a great lover of, I love two things, in addition to you know my family and my faith. <laughs> I love... Uh, Etymology, the, the word origins, and I love analogies. And I began to chew on this image that, that Augustine presents of Jesus giving himself to us uh, in his marriage bed, the cross. Now, what would contraception be? If you insert in contraception into that, in that picture, what would it be and analogically? And I well, came up with this. Well, it would be Jesus appearing to die, but faking it. He'd go into a swoon or a nap. He'd close Which, his eyes. He would produce no heartbeat so that the Roman you know, guards would be fooled. But really, he wouldn't have died for our sins. A grotesque, satanic lie, right? Yeah. Well, that is the heavenly analogy Paul gives us in Ephesians 5. That's the great mystery upon which the, the Christian mysteries, God's marriage proposal to us, body and soul, are built. And so what's at stake here is not really about one night with one you know, rubber device or one pill. There's a supernatural angle here that points to something much greater being um, at stake. It, and I wonder if it connects us with, with the idea when Jesus says, referring back to the beginning, when he says that the two shall become one. Mm-hmm. And how do we understand that the two become one? And then mm-hmm. apart from the teacher of the church, you can come up with a lot of different explanations. Is it purely legal? Um, you share the same house together? Or is there a mystical understanding of the oneness of the sacramental marriage that is beyond our ability, even in reason, to fully understand? Mm-hmm. It's an intimacy there that, like many of the other sacraments, is an in- intimacy between the human and the divine that's hard the divinity of Christ, how do we understand that? The mm-hmm. Trinity, how do we understand that? The real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, how do we understand that? The, the fact that we become new creatures in baptism, how do we understand that? Well, two become one, how do we understand that? Mm-hmm. And so when the union of the husband and wife in intercourse is the sacrament of the marital bond, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. The one thing that distinguishes that relationship from every other love relationship. Yeah, yeah. and so if you're going to fake it, Right by by putting a, a barrier between, then mm-hmm. in essence, it's not just preventing birth; it's preventing marriage. It's an unconsummated marriage that is contracepted. I think the answer 
It's a very good question, Marcus. I would say that if you don't have the sacramental understanding of marriage, then you're, you're going to be hard-pressed to really wrap your arms around the two-in-one thing because it becomes a contractual, horizontal thing. The two-in-one property, two-in-one, uh, you know, uh, where you live, you live together, you share a common life, you, you share common values, you know, you own stuff together, you yeah. do stuff together. But where, where it comes full circle is that the two-in-one really become manifest in the ch- in the child where mom and dad look at that child and say you know the last the last thing i say in the book i i, I end with a quoting stevie wonder <laughs> i can't believe what god has done through us he's given life to one isn't she lovely made from one there's the two in one flesh right there literally um yeah. before you and this also you know catholics are are um we can easily navigate from heaven to earth because of the, this incarnational principle you mentioned earlier. This is also present in a heavenly way in the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. because th- there are two different ways to see this. Uh, one is uh, from within and one from without. For instance, the child in a way can be seen as a mini-incarnation of Christ where the invisible God becomes visible as the invisible love from husband and wife and vice versa become visible in the child. But also... Uh, inwardly, the Holy Spirit spirates from the love of the Father and the Son. And so, a whole chapter in the book here on, on uh, the Trinity, because the me-first mentality, which is the hallmark of contraception, and that whole worldview, is lethal to the Trinity. If one of the, whole, of the divine persons, you know, it's absurd to think this way, but if they thought, oh, I think I'll hold something back, the whole Godhead is destroyed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, again, we're we're limited by our our human understandings of these mysteries, mm-hmm. even the Trinity, uh, because we there's no way in our life that we can ever fully understand that kind of selfless love that the Father gives to the Son, the Son gives to the Father, mm-hmm. and then the ex- that expression of the love between them is the Holy Spirit, and and how that led to us. Well, we're sure Adam and Eve would have experienced that, but but. They chose. Which, pardon? What's the that they would have experienced? They would have experienced that intimacy with God, mm-hmm. the supernatural intimacy with God, if they had not decided. If Adam had, instead of saying, "I can figure, I can take care of this, I can figure it out myself," rather than saying, "God, I need your help," mm-hmm. <laughs> in the middle of the garden, yeah, right, right, mm-hmm. you know, Lord, I need you. Uh, if he'd mm-hmm. just said that, uh, help yep. me in, yep. in the garden, that, yep. the, then the whole thing would have been different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing I was going to say that also with this passage, it, I'm wondering if Patrick, the other reason in 1930 that this particular passage lost its weight, lost its power, and then crumbled as the foundation for this, is because it was after that whole his, historical critical attack on Scripture, which had mm-hmm. been undercutting it by the end of the 18th century, 1800s, yep, beginning in the 1900s. Um, you have the rise of the evangelical movement within Protestantism as a reaction against the liberals, but it was the liberals who were in control of the mm-hmm. Episcopal Church that undercut this thing. But the other thing I was going to say is that I, I'm visioning some even evangelicals hearing us saying, well, you know, that's the Old Testament. That's works. It, my my faith is in Jesus. Mm-hmm. What I do with my body mm-hmm. doesn't affect my eternal relationship with God. And I thought I'd read one passage mm-hmm. to let you reflect on 2 Corinthians 5.10, mm-hmm. because those of you listening who come from the plan A, plan B mentality of Paul, this would be definitely plan B, which means it's after the cross. And Paul says to the Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive good or evil according to what we what he has done in the body. Mm-hmm. What we do with our body, we will stand before God. Yeah. He says earlier in another letter that we're not our own. We're bought and paid for. So where, where does this, why do Christians say phrases like that? My body, I do with my, if we're bought and paid for, play with that, you know, you look, you've got a crucifix here, beautiful crucifix. There's our price tag. We're worth that. So this whole uh, don't deeply, throw your bo- your body to harlots, right? In First you, Corinthians three, yep, you become one with one, right? 
And so the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're not the Holy Spirit, but imagine, of all the places God chooses to live, it's you, inside you and me. So uh, there's a limit to this radical autonomy that's at play in that, in that way of, of seeing things. And I think you're right. The, the biblical scholarship question is at play in dissent, which is, I think, part of the reason why Pius Twelfth wrote Divino, Divino Flani Spiritu in 1943. That's only 13 years after Casti Canubi. Yep. Yeah, so we need to take one of those last breaks. I can't believe it. I refuse to believe that we're that far. Well, it's because I talk too much. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we'll come back just a second and pick up on this. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Patrick Coffin, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. WTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1 800 664 5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Patrick Coffin. He's taking a break from his usual program over on Catholic Answers. Uh, Patrick, I want to make sure you have plenty of time to deal with this passage because I keep gabbing away. Because this, this, I mean, what do we take from this thing? Does, is this verse alone a good enough foundation? I think the question suggests that us um, a, a moral teaching on something about which so much is at stake is um, able to have just one passage. I don't. Th- I can't think of any other grave moral question that only has a single verse in its favor. Yeah. So there's a there's a web, there's a tapestry of scriptural anchors for this teaching. Uh, Genesis 38 is just the most direct, literal, blunt, you know, um, example of it. But it's it's found just below the surf- surface in dozens and dozens. I mean, I had to. St- this would have been the longest chapter in the book. Uh, something that's uh, used frequently by by Protestants, starting with the Reformers, is Psalm 127, right. in which uh, it's a lovely, very homey, if not homely, image. Uh, Lo, sons are a heritage from the Lord. Okay, not a burden. <laughs> They're a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the of the womb, a reward. Like the, the, like the arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Okay, this is a classic Old Testament passage. Now, this passage is given a special attention by a guy named Charles Provan, or Proven. Uh, he's dead now. He was a Calvinist, not a buddy of the Catholic Church, believe me. But his book, The Bible and Birth Control, is a real eye-opener for Protestants. I always recommend it to people who are not Catholic because he spends a lot of time unpacking this image in Psalm 127. In fact, it's the it's the name of a whole movement in evangelicalism, the Quiverful movement. Yeah. You know, the Duggar family, 19 right. and pregnant, they're part of this. They don't believe in any kind of uh, regulation of birth. They think even NFP is sinful. We, I mean, we wouldn't agree with them on that. But I like the countercultural sign that they are. You know, yeah. people with large families are, are, are that way, come kind of swimming upstream. But a quiver was uh, part of the standard... Israeli warrior uh, armaments. It was the it was his weapon um, canister in a sense, and so what kind of of a of a nitwit warrior would go into battle with two point one arrows? <laughs> you know, you want your quiver packed. Now again, it's not numerical. That's the that is the um, the point, but volitional. You want you want to maximize the reward, the fruit of your womb, and the reward as as God says in His Word. Uh, is the proper attitude toward children. And so uh, when you think of an arrow being fired from a, from a, from a warrior and the arrow goes out, there's, the, there's, a, there's a suggestion of time. The, the arrow is the sign, or the presence rather, of the soldier. He can't shoot a bullet, but he can fire an arrow. So children are like 
our, they're, we're flinging our, our family into the future and our children will outlive us, you know, God willing. So we're, we're, we're always geared toward hope, toward new life, toward the future. And um, I, I think that this uh, that Psalm 127 is a lovely I'm wondering image. In, in your studies, Patrick, that, again, one of the reasons that this loses its its weight amongst moderns is because they would argue that this is a time period when a a father would need his kids to accomplish the tasks and support of his family. The more kids he's got, the more fields he can have to plow because he did, they didn't have all the furniture, the uh, technology and such. So you needed mm-hmm. all these kids were over time periods. Uh, here we are that. Um, you know, you, you live in an area where there's not a whole lot of land, and for more kids you got, you got to divide it up. And you can't provide for them. I mean, that was a problem in early Canada and early America because as the families grew, the land couldn't support all the families, so they had to keep moving west. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon you end up with the grapes of wrath because you've got too many. You see what I'm saying? This is the mm-hmm. arguments that people are using against it, which makes sense because you look at the 20s and the Dust Bowl era and all of that and these big families, you can't support them. Plus, now we move to a time when, when the men are out of the home and they got their job over there in the corporation. And not only are you not thinking about your children following you in that corporation, but today you don't. It's called mm-hmm. nepotism. Mm-hmm. So there's a great discouragement in modern industry and modern workforce to have your kids with you. Mm-hmm. So there's even an emphasis on it's better for the husband and wife to have good jobs and enjoy their stuff and to not burn their lives with any of these extra arrows in their quiver. Yep, I hear that loud and clear. It's odd, though, that Scripture somewhere else wouldn't attest to that background question and contextualize it and and detooth it, defang it, if you will. (laughs) And it's odd that every Christian leader, forget popes and councils, every Protestant exegete, pastor, and from from the from the from Germany and England and Switzerland of the of the 16th century to England of the of the 20th century would have said the same thing about the moral force of these verses, and without the context that you're saying, well, yeah. really, you have to see the the the, the bigger picture here is uh, had to do with their obsession with population growth or where fathers and sons lived and so on. So, <laughs> I, I think I would need more evidence that this can be textualized away before I get on board. I love evidence. I like going where it leads me, but that uh, strikes me as well. As I empty. think it's it, it it also falls through with the whole population uh, explosion movement today, which is groundless. It, it, I have a chapter called "Answering Chicken Little." We do have a population problem. Marcus, we do. It's a population implosion. And when people first hear this, they go, are you crazy? Don't you read Newsweek? You've never read CNN.com? First world <laughs> countries are in dramatic freefall. Uh, Putin of Russia says that uh, the population loss every year in Russia is the greatest problem facing Russia. 750,000 Russians each year uh, go away through death and, uh, and um, emigration. There are more... Um, geriatric homes and facilities in Japan now than Disneyland-type uh, adventure parks. Japan is perilously below replacement levels, which is about 2.1 kids. Uh, Germany, same thing. Italy, France, a lot of the uh, traditionally strong Catholic countries are now in demographic trouble. Once enough generations stop producing children at that replacement level, you have uh, a law of diminishing returns. You can't turn it around. Uh, now, this is counterintuitive because the population, we just crossed about 7 billion. Now, the worldwide population is increasing, but it's not doubling and tripling as uh, Reverend Malthus said it would in the 1700s mm-hmm. and Paul Ehrlich said it would in the 60s. His book, The Population Bomb, it's interesting, came out the same year Humana Vitae did, 19, summer of 1968. <laughs> <clears throat> he believed that millions of Americans now living would die of starvation in the 80s. Now, we laugh at that because it's now 2012. But it was believed then. It's just yeah. not true. It is not true. In yeah. fact, I've heard people argue that it. I mean, make sure you're hearing me on the radio here that I don't believe this whatever. Mm-hmm. But there, are, I've actually heard someone say that that to a certain extent, the wars of the 20th century, along with the abortion, were the blessing to humanity. Because yes. if they had not happened, we would be like an ant hill on this earth with all those people alive. Yeah, yeah, I, I know it's stunning. There's, uh, I cite a doctor um, from Texas, uh, uh, Pianca, I think his name is, 
uh, he believes that the popu- we the whole world could stand an outbreak of uh, the Ebola virus because we're we're just we're parasites on our mother, i.e., the earth. The best way to refute it, I have 15 factoids with which to vex people who, who buy into this. One of them is just get on an airplane in any major city. I don't care if it's uh, Beijing or New York City or uh, Bombay and take off and about 10 minutes later look down. You will see verdant green. You will see lots of arable land. And that's true even in countries that are allegedly overpopulated like, like China. The heavily, one of the most heavily populated areas in the world is Hong Kong, which has a powerhouse economy. Uh, same with South Korea outstrips China, you know. So the idea that ch- that children, new children are the problem is precisely wrong. More m- children first of all, they're the future workforce. Mm-hmm. You know, um more of us is a good thing, not not fewer of us. Well, it's going to take a lot of prayer and changed hearts. It is the I deliberately wrote the book as an evangelical tool. I think our culture Marcus, when a guy like Larry Flint becomes a First Amendment hero and a, and a, a movie's made, you know, by people like uh, Milos Forman. There's a problem. Houston, there's a problem. Yeah. When the magazine covers in any grocery store are things you have to turn around or not bring your kids there, our culture is pornified and it's mainstreamed. And we really need the grace of Jesus Christ, the divine bridegroom, to show us what our sexuality is about. We need our maker now more than ever on this. You mentioned earlier the name of the of the movie, producer, director, I can't think of it right now, who did a, it's a Wonderful Life. Frank Capra. Frank Capra, mm-hmm. Catholic, and I've often wondered when that movie was done. It was not all that long after all this stuff hit the fan in mm-hmm. the 30s, and we, we love the movie for all kinds of reasons, but the point of the movie is the difference that one life makes. Yep. In the world. Mr. Capra, I wrote a book I recommend to people. It's called The Name Above the Title. He wrote it in 1971. And you, his, he was lapsed at the time, but it leaked out of him all over the place. Yeah, he thought contraception re- represented the death of creativity. And that, you know, the, mm-hmm. if just take, that, that's the point everyone should reflect on from that movie. Mm-hmm. Life, how different would be if any one of us weren't here. One more soul. Great Catholic apostolate. Patrick, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Marcus. God bless you. Good 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 Hope to have you back. And maybe I can join you in your radio program someday uh, before the next millennia hits. We shall do it. That'll be fun anyway. But (laughs) thank all of you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. I I do pray that this is an encouragement to you to look at Scripture, but always study Scripture within the teacher that gave it to us, the church, especially on difficult issues. We've got to be careful that we don't lead on our own understanding, as it says in Proverbs 3 that we trust in the Lord and His church. God bless you. See you soon.